scripture this morning is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The desert is a wasteland. You can expect nothing to happen there. If you find yourself in the desert, I don't have to make the the jumps for you, do I, in terms of like the actual desert or the desert of your life at various times, but if you find yourself in the desert, your goal is likely simply to survive, to make it through. But some of you know already, you've lived long enough to know that the desert can teach you things. Sometimes the most important things. Rabbi Bar Bar Hanna, in the third century, so 200 and something, said that he had come to know an Arab merchant who in the desert could take up sand and smell it and then tell you how far away water was. The rabbi apparently tested him on this and picked up sand from one place and and moved it to somewhere else, but... The merchant got it right. The desert has a long and storied history in the narrative of many faiths, not just the Christian faith. But it has a particular place in the Christian faith. The desert is a wilderness, a wild place. But it plays so prominently in the Old Testament. How could you understand the story of the people of God without the desert, the journey from Egypt to the promised land? And in the New Testament, Jesus himself Right before he begins his ministry, he's tempted in the desert, driven by the Spirit into this barren place. Nobody, it would seem, would choose to live in the desert, though I suppose some have. It would be like choosing a barren life. I don't suppose some have. Some have. We have in our own Christian history the desert fathers and mothers who uh, many centuries ago moved from the cities that they had considered had become corrupt And they they thought that they couldn't live their faith there very well and uh, found themselves and and moved themselves out into the desert. But for us today, as we consider a desert story, we do so in taking up a second practice in what we're calling essential actions of or essential actions in the Christian faith. Last week we were called to wake up Jacob the schemer, for those who are here, if you remember. Jacob waking up to God. And this week, I'm going to give you an essential action in the Christian faith. I mean, as I consider these things, one of the things I've been thinking is the, the things that you often get the, the finger, we're used to probably more than now, and, but, you know, the things that you consider that, that good religious people would do this to, to other religious people or something. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? Um, traditionally, those have been in particular categories, often moral categories, you know, why aren't you living like this, like I think you should, or why aren't you doing this? 
if I, if I were the kind of person who would shake my finger at you, and I'm not, so either thanks be to God or some of you wish that I was, but you really like me to shake my finger at other people usually. But anyway, uh, it's about time somebody told that guy what he should do. Um, if I was going to do that, I would do it over things like this. You need to wake up to God's presence in the world. Even in those places where you, you're so broken down that it takes a rock to be a pillow. And you need to pay attention to God. I don't know that, that that many people in my Christian upbringing got upset at me over these things. It was all external all the time. But who was the person who saying, Sog, you're not cultivating the, the ability to pay attention to God. So today we're looking at Moses and the burning bush. We've just read five verses of this story. It's a lot longer story than that, both before, uh, up into including chapter 2, that sets up this encounter of Moses and God. And then afterwards, from verse 5 onwards, uh, verse 6 and on, it's a rather lengthy conversation between God and Moses that proves uh, very critical in the history of of uh, Jewish thought and Christian thought and the narrative of the whole of the Bible. This story of Moses and the burning bush, in other words, is, is essential in terms of uh, Jewish and Christian history. What you have, you remember this, many of you, I'm sure, is you have God's people who have become slaves in Egypt. Last week we spoke about Jacob, and Jacob has these sons, and, they're, and, and basically well, what happens is they find themselves down in Egypt through a drought and other incidents, and, and what will happen then is centuries of slavery. The people will be enslaved by the Egyptians. Moses is born, and his very name means one who is drawn out. And those of you who like the good Sunday school stories of the baby in the basket and being drawn out of the water, there's lots of stuff in the Exodus narratives that are nice, good Sunday school stories. The trouble is most of it isn't. Because pretty soon you'll get, you know, plagues of, of uh, rivers of blood and frogs falling from the sky and and the death of the firstborn, and it's not uh, the nicest of all stories. But Moses, known as the one who was drawn out, will himself be the one who God uses to deliver and draw out the slaves. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household, but he learns of his identity as he sees the condition of the slaves and sees the oppression that they're living under, and Moses kills an Egyptian taskmaster, someone who's been abusing one of these slaves. He kills this Egyptian and uh, finds out that people know that he did it, and he runs to the desert. In the desert, Moses will encounter God. He will be called back to lead the people from slavery to freedom. There's so much in the story of of Exodus and the deliverance of the people that, of course, um, I can't, in, in the time I have here, and no animated movie or, or any other such can, can um, encapsulate all of what's, what happens. But for our purposes this morning, I want to teach you, to show you, to teach myself as well, that Moses demonstrates to me and to you the practice of paying attention. And if he hadn't, the story, well, now we're into, you know, how would we write it? if Moses had been unable to pay attention. What I'm going to say to you is if you are unable to pay attention and take up this practice in the Christian faith, 
you will and you already have this morning. I'm confident, I'm confident that each one of us has done at least one thing this morning. Walked right past the divine. If we're unable to practice attentiveness, we will also fail to encounter the living Christ. And we'll be dependent on other people to tell us what to think and what to do and what's proper. And the loudest voices will win. And often the angriest. You need to learn how to pay attention to God. We've put this into our scheme of uh, essential actions in the Christian faith, or the title that I was working with in my mind as I was working on this series is how to have a good day and then another. Uh, And the, the problem is that your idea and my idea of a good day is often dictated by the busyness in our lives. So yesterday, it was one of the first Saturdays in months that, that we actually didn't have 45 things to do. And so we found ourselves telling one another that this is a good day. And, and it was. It was great to have the rest and the relaxation and the gardening and whatever else. Uh, but, but sometimes that, that, word, that definition of good can overtake where we think good means, well, I don't have any responsibility. I want you to know how to have a good day like a day where you feel truly alive and where you know the reality of the presence of God. And so we begin. Moses is in a place in which encounter with God or even a higher purpose would be thought of as unlikely. Moses, through the circumstances of his own life and uh, the things that he has done, has run into the desert and uh, he finds himself cut off from the life that he thought he had and certainly the future that he imagined Uh, Some time ago or years ago, he's now living in a place where, well, that future has been changed. At some level, we could consider the circumstances of Moses' life unfortunate, but they're not only unfortunate, because in this desert place, he has... Found, he's, he's married a woman, and he he's, has a young family now. So he's, in a sense, gone on with his life, but he is cut off from his previous life. So the first question for us, I'm going to just give you five questions and five answers. It's a really basic way of walking through this, but it'll be something that you can take with you into your own life. And I'm not going to put the answers on the screen, so you'll have to listen. The first question is, where am I to pay attention? Moses is in this place cut off from what he thought would have been the the reality of his life. Where am I to pay attention? And the answer, of course, is everywhere in your life. Moses' life had broken down. It's not, as I say, that it was without purpose or meaning. He had this family. He had people to care for and people who loved him. But he found himself outside the stream in which he thought he could affect any substantial change in the world or make any substantial difference. This was his life now, tending the sheep of his father-in-law in the desert. And by many standards in the world then, and certainly by many standards in the world now, we would say, finding himself in such a place, he had failed. He'd lost. But this is where the encounter will occur. And so for you and for me, where are we going to encounter God? In church? I hope so sometimes. But if you, the, the idea of paying attention to God is much bigger than coming to church. We are here, hopefully, to help one another learn to encounter God so that we can encounter God in church, but also in the whole of our lives. 
So if you kind of get geared up to encounter God, like I'm going into this place now and we're going to encounter God and whether it's a revival service or whatever it might be, I'm not saying it won't happen there. I'm just saying that that's you, in a sense, trying to control where you encounter God. I know now at 7.30 on Wednesday night I'm going to this meeting and man, we're going to encounter God there. Right away, you've put yourself in charge of the interaction. Do you understand that? Now, God may graciously show up, but he is doing so, in a sense, um, giving in, uh, being tender about your own immaturity. Okay, you need me to kind of schedule in, I'll meet you. There's no such scene here. The answer to where are you going to encounter God, this is not, there's, there's five questions, this is not one of them, this is like 5A. The answer to where are you going to encounter God, there's only one answer, only one answer. Wherever God chooses to reveal himself. You understand that? Now, by his grace, it might be here. But it might be out of here. However, in order to be part of this encounter, to engage in it, you must know what it means to pay attention. Moses is simply doing his job, and we could venture to guess that this is not Moses' chosen job. Tending the sheep of his father-in-law. That's what he was aiming for in his life when he grew up in this in this royal place that one day he would be in the desert tending the sheep of his father-in-law i picture the conversation between father-in-law and moses father-in-law apparently a fairly uh, caring individual uh, but who who says well and his and his, his son-in-law's there and they've got this young family and moses seems to have no future so the father-in-law says well i guess i have some work for you can you tend sheep I guess I can tend sheep. And that's now what Moses' days were. So write yourself into the story. Moses was not where he thought he'd be. One day you were driving to work or taking out the garbage at that crappy place that you work, that job you can't stand. Or one day you were sitting in class thinking, why am I taking this course of studies and where's it going to lead? Or one day you were doing homework or one day you were folding laundry. The call is to pay attention in the whole of our lives. And if Moses didn't have this ability, I don't know what the story would have been. Moses is tending the sheep of his father-in-law and he sees a strange sight. If you can grow in this practice of paying attention, you will grow in your faith. You want to know how to grow in your faith? Often you don't really want to know how to grow in your faith. What you want is how to feel better. Right? I, I want you, and, and, and at our best times, we actually want to grow in our faith. If you want to grow in your faith, if you cultivate the ability to pay attention, you will grow in your faith, full stop. Moses is tending these sheep, and he says to himself, just like that, that seems to be an odd sight. And I think Moses isn't just looking for strange natural or physical phenomena. Moses is looking for God. Still in his life, in in the whole scheme of the narrative of his life, he's looking for God. But he sees this bush, and it's burning, but it's not being consumed. And so he walks over to take a look at it. What does Moses do next? This is the key for him. 
and the key for you and the second of our five questions. What's required in order to pay attention? So often, the way we think today, we would say that some kind of expertise is, is required to pay attention or some kind of training or some kind of Holy Spirit power, which I suppose the third is to some degree uh, necessary, but it's not a practice that you have to learn. What is, What must you have in order to pay attention? The answer is this. You must have a willingness to turn aside. You must have a willingness to turn aside. You would like me to be a decent and good preacher, I would suppose. What that means is that there's time in preparation, that I've worked on things, that I've thought, okay, how can I say this? How do I think this engages with the people? But also in the very act of preaching itself, I must stand up here and even while I'm preaching, have a willingness to listen and even turn aside in my thoughts and say, you know something else? You know what I feel right now? Moses says to himself, I must turn aside to look at this great sight to see why the bush is not burned up. And it is now here that God is introduced in the story. Because Moses turned aside, God called to him out of the burning bush. What will it take to get you to the place where you're willing to turn aside from those? I mean, I know what you are doing in your life today and tomorrow. I know one thing about it. And I don't mean to be flippant here or dismissive. But I know it's more important than what Moses was doing, right? Your life is so much more important than his. I mean, that's how we can think. Moses, in a life just like yours with tasks and responsibilities and unfulfilled hopes, Moses, in the midst of the duties of his day, had a willingness to turn aside from whatever activity it was that was taking up his time. In the midst of it. I'm thinking of this in relationship to the activities of our lives. So what it means is that, and it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not listening, it means, and hopefully it means that I'm listening more, that even when I'm in a conversation with you, a conversation with a friend, a conversation with another Christian, or a conversation with someone who's not a Christian, I have in my mind this question, even as I'm speaking, and even as I'm seeking to be fully present, Heavenly Father, how are you present right now? What would you have me see? When you do that, you, you discover that one of the things that happens is you become less judgmental of the other person you're dealing with, because a conversation, you come in knowing often what, you, what that other person needs and what you need to tell them. But if you're, if you're saying, Heavenly Father, help me see what you would have me see right now. You're just talking to them about something, but you pick up on something else. It's a willingness to turn aside. Or you're on a walk. Or you're at work. It can be as in our lives at times as if we have a chart drawn out for our lives. And our world just is perpetuating this right now with the credentialing that happens in education and employment and whatever else. So if you do this, then you get this. Then you get this. Then you get this. Then you get this. Right? We've got this map drawn out. And if something upsets that system, then it can lead to all kinds of difficulty, including uh, depression or whatever else. Sometimes the occasion for some of those things we struggle with are that the chart hasn't worked. Your plans are vital. But what I'm telling you is, if you don't cultivate in the midst of this, which may happen like that, usually it's a bit more like this, sometimes you can, you can just suffer loss. 
But if you don't cultivate in the midst of this what you have mapped out for your life, the ability to pay attention, and more particularly the ability to pay attention to God, then in the end, whatever path your life takes, it won't really be of much great consequence. Some of these things are very important. What you need, what your family needs, how to map out your future. But turning aside is the ability to leave all of this, even the important stuff, even for a moment, That's a strange sight. I'd better turn and look. God, what would you have me to do? Turning aside is that disconnecting, even for a moment, holding lightly the very important things of your life. And the possibility here is that in this encounter, if Moses had just been totally focused on the tasks of the day, that God would not have revealed himself in such a way. Moses, Moses. And then this, here I am, says Moses. And the rest is history. But how many times in your life do you have that moment? This is where you've got to put your own name into the sermon. Todd, Todd. Here I am. We know now that creativity, coming up with ideas, comprehension, complex thought, and invention... All kinds of the most important things in our world, they require something that we're not cultivating right now. They require space and disconnection. They require time and even boredom. In other words, sitting at that bus stop with nothing else to do is what helps generate the thoughts that can be most important in your life. And if you pick up your phone and just fill that space all the time with stuff, just even on the purely worldly level, you don't get that creativity. On the bigger level, how will you ever pay attention to God if all the space in your life is filled? One of the most dangerous lines, I think it's deadly, if you're wanting to cultivate a life of paying attention to God. Um, And I don't mean to say this uh, judgmentally. I think this is something that I actually don't say that much. It's not like I, I don't say this much so that I can then judge you who do say it that much. But it's something that in my own life I've kind of thought, well, if, if I'm battling with this, then something might be wrong with me. So, uh, But it, it's, it's a major phrase in our culture. It's a, it's a deadly line if you're wanting to cultivate a life of paying attention to God, and it's this line, I don't have time. The, the corollary of it, the other way of saying it is, I am too busy. On one level, when you say, I don't have time, or I'm too busy, of course, we can say those things to, to help others to see how much we have to do or how harried our lives are or whatever it might be. Sometimes just saying that can be a cry for help, which is not a bad thing. But on one level, my response to the line, I don't have time or I'm too busy, could simply be to say, well, I mean, if I actually asked what your actual days are like, many of you, I would see, yeah, well, but you watch like four episodes in a row of such and such. And I know that that's also downtime and recreational time, so I'm not judging that activity. What what I am judging here and trying to bring out is this concept that we're constantly throwing to each other, that we're too busy, that we don't have enough time. Scripture would tell us that God has given us enough time. The question is how we fill it. The real answer, of course, in another way to I don't have time or I'm too busy, another way of responding to that is simply to say, of course you don't have time. No one does. I mean, I suppose there are people in this world who are just terribly bored and they don't have enough to do. But for many people in the world, the the response would be, do you think that you're the only one (laughs) 
whose day is filled with activities and events and responsibilities? You, you know that, right? You think I do this too. I can think how busy I am, but I don't often think of how busy the people that I'm going to meet are. So the question isn't whether we have enough time or whether we're too busy. The real question is, how am I going to live in the midst of the realities and responsibilities of my day-to-day life? Will I have in my life a willingness to turn aside? And if I say to somebody I'm simply too busy, it on some level speaks to the question of willingness. I mean, we've, we've raised children. We know what it's like to have young kids and just feel like there's never a second. I mean, it's one of the first things that hits you when, when, when uh, your first child is born. You think, all of a sudden, I have absolutely no life. My eyes are fixed all the time on this other person, and they control me. I have no time. So I'm sympathetic to the realities of people's lives, including young parents. But even in the midst of that, I say, if you have a willingness to turn aside in with that, God will speak. The third question. What comes along with paying attention to God? Or, in other words, I I couldn't find the way to word the question. What is closely associated with paying attention to God? Or you could say, how do we used to refer to this? What comes along with paying attention to God? And the answer is one word. The answer is reverence. Reverence. Another word we don't major on often in our culture. Moses is going to have quite a conversation with God here, and it's lengthy. But the first thing that's said, Moses, Moses, here I am. Moses walks towards that burning bush, and then God says, don't come near. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Reverence stands in awe of something. That something does not have to be grandiose. It can be even a simple flower. When I was working on this, and I meant to get one of these paintings and put it up for you, a painting of Georgia O'Keeffe, who would often paint flowers and art like that. And she said, in a way, nobody sees a flower. It's too small. And one of the reasons people engage with my art, she says, is that I kind of force them to see what they just walk by. I mean, Caroline, you're a painter. Same kind of thing. When you really hit that flow, it's a, it's a reverence and an awe for just a landscape or a scene. We need to take the word reverence, though, out of its religious shackles. For some people, reverence uh, came to mean, and this is not the meaning of the word, but it came to mean, don't talk in church. Shh. Did any of you used to get shushed in church as children? Did you ever feel that the person doing the shushing was generating reverence? Not once. They were just being mean. That's not reverence. And don't let anybody tell you that it is. Now, there's a way to say to a child, you know, we can do it. But the shh with that edge will never produce reverence. It just will lead a child to confuse, to confusion, to think that maybe if this person's mean and they're telling me what God's like, maybe God's mean too. That's not reverence. Paul Woodruff, a philosopher, said, Reverence is that virtue that keeps people from trying to act like gods. To forget that you're human, he says, is the opposite of reverence. True reverence, he continues, cannot be for anything 
anything human beings can make or manage by ourselves. There is a kind of false reverence in our world, and so following on what Woodruff says, uh, if we're revering things that are man-made creations, it's a false kind of reverence. And I would say that it's perhaps the biggest reverence in this room, and not that all people have this, but it's pretty common in our culture today, perhaps the biggest reverence in this room, and I'd call it a false reverence, is that we revere money. Money. I mean, if, you, if I right now told you that you had had money stolen from you or taken from this, or I mean, I, I, I would know how to get reaction from almost everybody in here. Because money is that which is elevated in our culture way up here. We think it can do things and achieve things. And in some ways, in the way we've set up the world, it can. But it's a man-made creation. One of, I'm so glad that Jesus said this when he was asked about paying taxes, right? It's almost flippant, but it's beautiful. Uh, what should we do about money, Jesus? That's really the, the question. You know, how should we organize our finances? And what should we do about money? And some people say we should pay taxes, and some people say we shouldn't. And Jesus, it's just beautiful. You know the story, right? Why don't you bring me a coin? Bring a coin. Whose picture's on that coin? It's Caesar. Oh, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Barbara Brown Taylor, and and I'm using an outline. uh, The outline for this series comes from one of her books called An Altar in the World. She tells of a friend of a Native American elder who begins teaching people reverence by steering them. If some of you have been to like uh, the big house at outdoor school, you could imagine this type of practice. A Native elder who begins teaching people reverence by steering them over to the nearest tree and then says, ask the people, do you know that you didn't make this tree? And the elder says, if they say yes, then I know that they're on their way. You think too much of your life and not, not enough about God. But true reverence is not the priest, Uzzah, trying to protect the ark, for those of, you who, those of you who know the story from Samuel, when they're bringing the ark of the covenant back and the priest trying to protect it from the ground and he's, he reaches out and he's, he, he dies over this. We're told that God strikes him down. Meanwhile, and sometime after that, David is dancing seemingly like without, with, with abandon. And, and we're told David is reverent and the priest isn't. You understand that? Reverence is not simply decorum. We think too much of our lives. The fourth question, what's the mindset that prevents attentiveness? What's the mindset that pre- prevents paying attention? The answer from Simone Weil, a Jewish um, mystic really, but... Uh, writer, prayer, thinker, many years ago. What is the mindset that prevents us from paying attention? And this is a bit wordy to tell you, and and you might have to kind of unpack it yourself, even outside of the sermon. But the mindset that prevents us from paying attention is wanting to devour something rather than simply to look at it. I don't have to describe too much what this means in our world, because our world is all about devouring things. People, money, experiences, right? Tick them off the list. One thing and then the next and then the next. Just devour all these things. To own, to consume, and to control. In the spiritual life, if God is dead or if God is not real, then devouring things and piling up of experiences would be the way to go. But if God is alive and good, then you can do this incredible spiritual thing. You can let go even of the best experiences in your life. Even of the things that you think, I I had this experience, I'll never have an experience like that again, and I loved it. 
But if, if God is dead, that's a threat. If God is alive and good, watch. It enlivens the very experience itself. To give an example, some of you as parents have raised your children and you can think back to when they were little and young and you see a picture maybe in your house or something and you think, oh, and you long for those days. Maybe some of you long for those days, some of you don't. When we long for days like that, we tend to forget how we felt on those actual days, including when the photo was taken. We have a picture of Aiden in a field of of, uh, dandelions in Austria. It is the cutest picture in the world. It is sound of music perfect. But I know what was happening in the time just before and just after that picture. We were screaming at him. <laughs> Don't stop, stop it, stop it, stop it. And then he sat down for a minute, picture, oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> and you can look back to the time when, when, you, when your child is so young and so cute and you can think, I'll never have that again. Oh, I long for those days. Oh, I... And I understand that I'm not saying you shouldn't in some ways. But when you understand that God is alive and God is good, you can say, thank you, Heavenly Father, for that time. But thank you for now. Because you are as alive now as you were then. And the life and truth and beauty and wholeness that I knew then came from you. And you have that for me now. But wanting to devour experiences stops us from being attentive. And if you just long for something else, you won't be able to pay attention where you are. If Moses had have been absolutely overwhelmed with thoughts of wanting to be back in Egypt when he was in this desert place, he never would have heard the voice of God. He would have just been planning how to get back. Finally, what's one of the first signs of paying attention? What's one of the first signs of reverence? Well, it can come with a healing. When you pay attention and God speaks to you, you can be healed in a way that I can't describe to you, but you know when you feel it. Barbara Brown Taylor says, I know for a fact that it's possible to survive a great grief by hauling a mattress outside on a clear night and lying flat on your back under the belly of the sky. And I'll continue the little children theme, and I'm looking back at at the hogs. We're Dave and Donna. Now, I know you, know you guys have lives just like the rest of you. You have a lot of concerns and issues and problems. And some days probably are just like, what are we going to do? And what if this doesn't work out? And what about this terrible thing? But when you hold Nathan, when you pay attention to it, there's a word for what you're experiencing. Healing. We learn to pay attention, we'll know healing. An old woman who could not sleep was beset with a fear that she might not wake up. And someone wise said to her, as long as you're awake in the middle of the night and into the early hours of the morning, try listening for the first bird that sings each morning. And so she did, and she heard, and she named the bird, and she found out what those kinds of birds like to eat. And then she put feeders in her yard, and other birds came. And she still doesn't sleep well, but she's no longer afraid of her life. We're told in Christian faith that it is in knowing Christ that I am healed, that we are healed. You encounter Christ so often in the desert of your life, at least in the letting go. And here comes ultimate healing. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. 
And so the application that I have, which always goes quick, often isn't here application. What should we do? Firstly, I don't even have it on the screen. That's how. What should we do? Firstly, pay attention to something, almost anything. Simone Real, one of my favorite quotes in, in the spiritual life, she, she's the one who said, attention taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. It presupposes faith and love. True attentiveness leaves us perpetually open to surprise. Or you could say, true attentiveness leaves us perpetually open to God. So pay attention to something, almost anything. A mosquito. A bird. The weather. Secondly, create spaces of quiet and boredom. Work against the direction of our world which seeks to fill up every space with a slogan or an ad or some kind of monetized form. Every space. Somebody told me there's ads on the top of buildings when you're flying into airports now. You, everywhere you go, there's an ad. Go to a washroom in a restaurant. Ad, 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 everywhere. Create spaces of quiet and boredom. We've removed these from our lives, but they're essential. We've told ourselves that they're a waste, but they tend to be the places where we encounter creativity and where we encounter God himself. In the 14th century, so the 1300s, a young woman comes come to us to be known as Julian of Norwich. She has an absolutely fantastic book. I would recommend it to all of you, though every one of us would struggle with its reading. But by the presence of the Holy Spirit, this book has, has for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, changed many lives. It's called Revelations of Divine Love. She had been mortally ill and close to death and received last rites. She suddenly recovered, and after this recovery, she had visions of Jesus, particularly visions of Jesus' death, torture, crucifixion, his passion. These visions took place over 15 years, and the book is her writing them out and what she was taught through the visions. And in, in this book, so most of them are about the love of Jesus Christ and his, his powerful love for the world. Uh, she's the one who said, that's been picked up in literature and in film, all is well, all is well, all manner of things shall be made well. She said that's the end of her vision, is that that's what she came to realize in Christ Jesus. But there's a little part in the book where it's actually quite, quite an important part, but she has a hazelnut in her hand, a little tiny hazelnut. And we can't tell if she's actually got it in her hand or if it's a, a vision she's having, but I think she's got this in her hand. And she says, And in this he showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand. As it seemed to me, and it was as round as a ball, and I looked at it with the eye of my understanding, hear the attentiveness in that, and thought, what can this be? And I was amazed that it could last for I thought that because of its littleness, it would suddenly have fallen into nothing. And I was answered in my understanding. It lasts and always will because God loves it. And thus everything has being through the love of God. Even, see what I'm telling you, I'm not telling you I'll have these visions over every little thing. But that Julian of Norwich somehow had the ability to take even something as insignificant as this and say, Heavenly Father, speak to me. The desert is a terrible place. It's a place where people go and die. And yet Moses, Moses in the desert encountered God. And then for those of you who know the story, this bush is in the same location, very close by to where the Ten Commandments would be given. 
Moses would be back in this place with a whole ton of people, not by himself. And as a pastor, I always think, I always ask, when Moses was there and this whole Ten Commandments scene was going down, did he look and see that bush? And it wasn't burning. Your life can at times feel like the last place you would encounter God. But if you learn and if you are open and willing to turn aside, God will speak. The only question is, and it's the one I'll leave you with, do you have more important things to do than to pay attention? If so, go do them. And in some time, we'll take two people, one who had very important tasks and just go, 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 and one probably who had important tasks as well but said, I don't think these are the most important. And we'll see how those lives work out. Thanks be to God. So Heavenly Father, guide us in this and open our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.